the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, we look at the beginning of the Irish Free State, which was established a century ago in the midst of a bitter civil war. Those who supported the treaty just felt that they needed to do this deal in order to survive and to found a state as a stepping stone towards something greater. If you look at what the Four Courts Garrison do, they have built barricades. And it's when the fighting actually starts, it is a surprise to so many of them. We look at how the civil war escalated to new levels of violence and bloodshed and the motivations of those on both sides of the treaty dispute. So they took strong steps to put an end to an insurrection that didn't have democratic support. And unfortunately, in doing that, they engaged in activities that were to prolong the bitterness. The anti-treaty side were not a monolith. Most of them did not want war either. It is not illogical for them to say, we have been fighting for a republic and we haven't got it. So we've got to maintain this fight. But we don't want to fight against our former comrades. This week marks the centenary of the Irish Free State, which formally came into being on the 6th of December 1922. Unlike the handing over of Dublin Castle in January 1922 or the handing over of military barracks to the newly created National Army, there were no crowds on the streets to celebrate the occasion. The Civil War had been raging for five months and there was no indication it would end any time soon. Within 48 hours of the establishment of the Irish Free State, one TD was assassinated in Dublin and four anti-treaty prisoners were executed in Mountjoy Jail as a reprisal. Tonight, we'll discuss the birth of the Irish Free State and the events which overshadowed it. I'll be joined throughout the programme by three guests. Dr. Colm Kenny is Emeritus Professor at DCU and author of the new book, A Bitter Winter, The Irish Civil War, 1922 to 1923. Also with me is Dr. Brian Hanley of Trinity College Dublin and our very own Liz Gillis, Historian in Residence for South Dublin County Council. You're all very welcome indeed. Now, the treaty itself was passed by the Dáil, narrow majority, 64 votes to 57. That was in January 1922. But in June of that year, there was a general election contested by a pro-treaty faction of Sinn Féin led by Michael Collins and an anti-treaty faction led by Eamon de Valera, as well as the, the Labour Party, which didn't have to wait anymore, and the, the Farmers' Party. Colin, why was that election so important in your view? Because it made clear that people heavily supported candidates who backed the treaty as the least worst way forward in Ireland. I mean, both sides of Sinn Féin, of course, were Republican, but those who supported the the treaty uh, just felt that they needed to do this deal in order to survive and to found a state as a stepping stone towards something greater. In the 22 election, the Labour Party was standing for the first time, if you like, in the Doyle. They had stepped aside until then and they too supported the treaty route, as did the Farmers' Party. In fact, the only candidates who were against it were that faction of Sinn Féin with de Valera who opposed the treaty and they did very badly. Um, the, you know, 80% of the electorate approximately basically supported the treaty. It was a democratic decision. I mean, it had been the treaty had been approved by a cabinet. It had been approved by Doyle Aaron, which itself, because of the previous two elections being confined to Sinn Féin, was somewhat more Republican, if you like, than the country at large. And here were the people saying, this is our decision. And that changed everything. This was now a situation where the Irish people themselves were saying in the 26 counties, we want this state, this is our decision. 
And that's the significance of it because the people who then reject that, they're essentially rejecting uh, the democratic will of the Irish people. Uh, more or less along the lines of what De Valera said when he said that the people have no right to be wrong. They were taking it on themselves, which, um, you know, which those who want to overthrow democracy always do, taking it on themselves to determine what was best for Ireland. The vote, though, Brian, of the people did not reflect the divide within the IRA or anything like the divide within the IRA. No, it didn't. And as well, it didn't necessarily imply that people were very enthusiastic about this settlement. I mean, the, there is another major player in this argument, which is Britain. Britain wanted the vote to go yes for the treaty and they made it clear that if it didn't, this would mean a renewal of war. I mean, we, there were still British troops in the 26 counties who were ready to move at any time. And this, was, this put huge pressure, I think, on all the political players but also on the electorate. I mean, if you can think of the circumstances today where a great power next to a smaller power tells them that you're going to have an election, we want it to go one way. If it doesn't, we may intervene. You can imagine, very few people in the world would say that that's a democratic choice. So there were huge pressures both on the pro and anti-treaty side. And I think to see it just simply as yes or no to democracy removes a lot of the complications. Some of the Democrats in inverted commas on the pro-treaty side were secretly arming and preparing for an offensive in Northern Ireland. Michael Collins was attempting to come up with a constitution which would bring both factions together again. The British were adamant that that couldn't happen. The British again are saying, we can't have a compromise on symbolism. All these things like the oath have to stay there. This has to be clear to the empire that we're not letting you go. So the the biggest gun really in this, in, in the military sense, was held by Britain. And Britain was still capable of intervening. It was still the preeminent military and, and global power so in you... the world. So, uh, so I'm saying that when Liam Mellows, for example, says this is not the will of the people, it's the fear of the people, he had a point. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people who would have ignored the vote on the anti-treaty side, but the anti-treaty side were not a monolith. Most of them did not want war either. So I think there are a lot of people, Labour as well, are ambivalent about the treaty. They don't actually think the treaty is great. They don't think it's what they're looking for. But they say, if we're elected, we will enter Leinster House. Well, I mean, Colin did make the point, least worst option. And it was, I think, Sinn Féin, anti-treaty Sinn Féin got 22% of the vote. So, you know, you're suggesting that's a lot of people who succumbed to a gun, metaphorically gun being put to their heads by the British government. Again, it's a very confusing election because right up to the, the eve of it, there was supposed to be a pact between both sides to return the exact same number of mm. TDs, which in itself is not a very democratic agreement, of course. And ultimately, that's that's abandoned. But the, the, the fact is, again, that you had an electorate which had grown over the previous few years, but is fought on the old register. Some people argued, for example, there's a lot of women excluded um, because it's been fought under the old register. The pro-treaty, I'd say, we can't, there's no time to change that. Again, so there's all kinds of, of, of things going on here. But ultimately, I think you can't ignore the fact that Britain wants this to go one way. And if it doesn't, it might mean war. And that puts an enormous pressure on any electorate. Yeah, I'm never quite clear about this argument. I mean, we all know the problem for 800 years, if you like, had been the fact that Britain was armed, violent and ready to suppress the wish of the Irish people. Nobody disagreed about that, that I'm aware of, you know, on the Republican or nationalist side. The fact it was a decision had to be made as what was the best tactic in the circumstances. People were free to support the anti-treaty side, to resume a war of independence that most uh, of the leaders of the IRA recognised had very little chance going anywhere in purely practical terms, and which the British and the Northern Ireland Unionists would have resisted tooth and nail. So to say that somehow or other people were voting on the basis of fear is perfectly 
perfectly reasonable, but people vote on the basis of fear. They vote in their own best interests at any election. They make up their mind who they're going to support, whether it's on you know, the border, whether it's on climate change, on all kinds of complex reasons. In this case, in the end of the day, mm. Four out of five supported the treaty option and that was the democratic decision. It's very important we remember this, I think, continually. Okay. Um, Brian mentioned the anti-treaty side not being monolithic. Now, it was not monolithic in lots of different ways and perhaps we'll be able to discuss some of those later in the programme. But in terms of going to war, uh, the anti-treaty side not being monolithic, uh, Liz, could, do you think there was any circumstances, could anybody have done anything to avoid the civil war. I don't as Brian said, the the huge person in the background is is Britain. Now you do have people like Cattle Brewer and Liam Lynch who are seen as the diehards of the Anti Treaty IRA, but who were the ones that were trying to avert civil war. I don't know if you can say that, you know, they, could anyone have done anything to stop it, as in because you have personalities like Rory O'Connor and Liam Mellows. I think what you can say is that nobody thought it was inevitable. And that is really shown by the actions of the Four Courts Garrison, the anti-treaty IRA executive, because the anti-treaty IRA itself had split. Brewer and Lynch are the ones that are seen as moderates. They're putting their, their faith in the Constitution, which, of course, as Brian said, is it, it's a non-starter with, with Britain. But if you look at what the, the, the Four Courts Garrison do, they're in the Four Courts since mid-April. And they do very little to actually set themselves up for war. They have built barricades. And it's when the fighting actually starts, it is a surprise to so many of them. There's one guy, Sean Prendergast, who is um, Antitree's, um the 1st Battalion. He and his friends were in the cinema, in the Plaza Cinema, when the order comes through to mobilise. And he says in his witness statement, we perceived this as a joke, but joke was not. And he says, we're standing in this hall and... All of us are just dumbstruck by this. So there's definitely a, a sense that civil war may be avoided. But I suppose you've got personalities and the, the events that snowball, you've got the assassination of Henry Wilson in London, you've got this big pressure coming from Britain. You then have the kidnapping of Ginger O'Connell, who was National Army, in response to the arrest of Henderson, who was a member of the Four Courts Executive. So it's really coming to a climax and that forces the hand, I feel, of the pro-treaty side to act. OK, just talk to me a little bit about the killing of Wilson because it was highly controversial. It's the event which apparently spurred the British government to uh, issue an ultimatum to Collins and to Griffith, get these guys out of the four courts because they assumed that it was a four courts operation. But in fact, as far as we're aware... It was a Michael Collins operation. Yeah, it was nothing to do with four courts. And as the, the garrison or members of the garrison say, it suited the pro-treaty side that the four courts garrison were blamed. But this had gone back to, you know, a previous discussion between Collins and members of the London IRA. And it's carried out by two members of the London IRA. But it was something that, you know, it had been discussed before and then it happens. It's not that Collins says shoot Wilson now. Mm. It was an order that had been discussed. It hadn't been rescinded as no, it were. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, okay. And Wilson, you know, he, he is a, a very important figure in terms of what's happening in the North. Mm. And, you know, the, the pogroms and all the violence that's happening in the North. So he is a, a target in the eyes of the, the IRA. But the British government, and it's Churchill, that is quite eager to go in and act in Ireland to actually attack the Four Courts Garrison. And it's McReady that, that pulls him back because he says if the British do attack... This is Neville Mac- General Neville McReady. Yeah, yeah. If they do attack, that actually could unite the IRA. And all of a sudden, they have armed 
these people and the Anne Street IRA are very well armed thanks to the capture of the, the warship the Upnor. Mm. So the scenario is a little bit different to what might have been a couple of months before and you know how would that have played on the world stage you know Britain has to think about propaganda as well you know how will this look on the world stage actually going back and reinvading the country there's a lot of things that come into play here but ultimately I do think that it's brought home to Collins when you have that kidnapping of Ginger O'Connell that gives him a legitimate reason I suppose to say we're going to attack. Now, we're strange in this country. We don't have an independence day. We don't really know mm. when the state <laughs> begins. Is it the 6th of uh, December 1921 when the Anglo-Irish Treaty is signed? Is it exactly a year later when the Irish Free State comes into existence? Is it uh, January of 1922 when the Dáil votes to accept the treaty? Um, do we know, Colm, when did the Civil War begin? Does the Civil War begin with the attack by the Free State forces on the garrison in the forecourts? Or has it already begun? Because there's lots of stuff going on. There's, there's problems in Donegal, there's problems in Kilkenny, there's shooting, there's killings. When does it begin? Well, I think uh, that's a very good question, actually. And I, I, I don't think you can realistically say that it begins at the specific moment when the state decides to take back the four courts. If you want to call it an attack, um, it, it was an attempt to take back the courts that had been seized at gunpoint with shots being fired sometime earlier. And by the same token, I think the McCready assassination can be... The Wilson assassination. Wilson, I mean, uh, can be exaggerated as, as the starting point. I, there was an inevitability. Once people took up arms against the state, against the majority of the people, there was an inevitability that the government would have to respond. And as early as February, there had been actually a, a likelihood that the state was going to attack. And that was in, when in Limerick, Captain Bill Stapleton of the National Army was shot. Uh, there were actions in Limerick, in, in Kilkenny, there'd been a two-day gun battle. There was constant pressure being put on the new state and a series of buildings being occupied. And sooner or later, if you were being serious about governing your own country, whether or not the British were sending you messages urging you to do it, you simply had to bite the bullet. Mm. Uh, literally, you had to take take it in your teeth and go after the people who were trying to overthrow the state. So it was going to happen anyway. And I think the civil war started essentially in the spring of 1922. And that's my point in a bitter winter. Brian, well, do you then agree? the problem is, is that both sides were fighting together a couple of months previously along the border. In Pettigo, the new Irish army and the anti-treaty IRA engaged the British army. First time since 1916 that the British use artillery. So, I mean, does the, do the modern defence forces know that they fought a war against Britain in 1922? Because these people are supposed to be at loggerheads, but they're cooperating in many places. People like Liam Lynch, Frank Aiken and so on were not eager for a civil war. Frank Aiken stayed neutral until the Free State moved against him in Louth and Armagh. Liam Lynch, again, is aghast at the behaviour of the Four Courts garrison. The people in the Four Courts were a faction of the anti-treaty IRA. They didn't represent the majority of the anti-treaty IRA at all, many of whom were based in Cork and who, again, were prepared to renew war against the British, which makes perfect sense for the IRA. I mean, it is not illogical for them to say, we have been fighting for a republic for complete independence and we haven't got it, so we've got to maintain this fight. But we don't want to fight against, you know, our former comrades. Mm. So in each case where there are clashes which are inevitable with all these groups of armed men on the streets and there's other factions as well, like rising crime, all these kinds of things, ex-British servicemen 
former British soldiers engaged in robberies and so on. So there's a lot of a lot of chaos. But the fact is that at each time it's talked down. There is a great sense among the IRA and among many Republicans that they can come to some kind of compromise. And what does seem to be the case again is that Collins and O'Duffy and Mulcahy and others privately are encouraging the idea that they will all be back together again fighting against the British in the North. If not this month, then maybe in a year's time. And I think that does throw into question all these ideas that it's a simple fight between Democrats and anti-Democrats that the people have decided and so on. It's a very, very confusing time and it's a tragedy that it emerges when it does. But, but, but it is key. The British do say we are going to intervene. MacReady is ordered. Retake the four courts. Use your men, use artillery, use the Royal Air Force if necessary. He pulls back for whatever reason. He says, no, no, wait. It could be disastrous if we do this. And he lets the free state do it. And ultimately, that does begin the civil war because Liam Lynch and others who've been very wary of siding with the people in the four courts now say, well, we have to fight. Collins believed they wouldn't. He thought if we take the four courts, the rest of the anti-treatyites will back off. But in actual fact, this really does start the civil war. Um, what about the position then of the Labour Party? Um, the Labour Party is a, a coming force, a growing force in Ireland, despite the fact that they are essentially not allowed. They are intimidated out of standing in the, the 1918 uh, election or are persuaded not to stand, whichever way you, you, you care to look at it. So what was, the, what was the status, what was the position, Brian, of the uh, Labour Party at this point in proceedings? Firstly, they weren't intimidated in 1918. They made a decision and they decided essentially in some ways to abdicate the opportunity for leadership and this is one of the problems that they had throughout their early years. They did have I think great popular support and it does reflect I think that among a lot of working class opinion there was a wariness of both sides. You see that in local council elections where they did stand. And they also then offer something I think which is an alternative to both. They also are very strong in the counties where there'd been kind of intense farm labour struggles. A lot of the TDs that are elected for them are union officials who'd been involved in these strikes. So I think it does labour very successfully pushed for a general strike in April against the drift to war. And they say both sides are intimidating people. Both sides have essentially become militarists and we want to stand against this. So I think that does reflect a popular feeling, particularly among the working class. And they do very well. They get 17 Mm. out of 18 candidates elected. If they'd stood more, they would have got more, essentially. Mm. And in five constituencies, I think they top the poll, which does show them to be a significant force. In the constituency where I live, they would have got to to Carl O'Shannon and gets Mm. two quotas, basically. They would have got got two in in that constituency. One of the great questions is, if they had stood in Clare, would would de Valera have got a seat? Because the Labour candidate wanted to stand in Clare, but the Labour candidate and three independents were somehow persuaded to withdraw and it's said that the returning officer actually turned his watch back to give them more time to consider the argument in favour of withdrawing and once they withdrew Sinn Féin had the clean sweep of the seats available and De Valera was elected but given as Brian has said that they won in 17 of the 18 constituencies that they stood and barely missed in the 18th it's an intriguing what mm. if of Irish history. I love the way you underline the word persuaded there when it comes to the decision <laughs> County Clare. Um, right the, the war enters a conventional phase with the, the, the first week of fighting in Dublin and the National Army take Dublin and then the war spreads throughout the country. But it takes a particularly savage uh, turn in late July, early August 1922, uh, from which point on there's an escalation in bloodshed, even though the conventional period of the war, Liz, is almost over at that stage. What is the trigger for the bitterness of, or at least the, the events that cause the legacy of, of bitterness? from August onwards? Well, I suppose it starts really with Harry Boland's death in, in Scaries. He's shot while he's being arrested. But 
Collins's death is a real trigger for what we're going to see over the coming months, which is what can only be described as as the the existence of murder gangs operating very much in Dublin, but also you do have it around the country. And you see it within four days of Collins's death, two members of Nafina, actually three fellas are taken off the streets and their bodies are found. You've got Alfred Colley, Sean Cole, who were FINA members. And the reason that they're targets is because Nafina had had a meeting. The majority of Nafina Aaron, they went anti-treaty. Some of these would have joined uh, to be what you'd call true saliers. Many would have joined up Jordan the Truce because they were young men. But others were seasoned veterans. And the thing is about Nafina, as part of that organisation, as soon as a, a lad hit 16, 17, 18 years of age, they graduated to the ranks of the anti-treaty IRA. So Nafina are deliberately targeted by the, the murder gangs. Now, what happens with Cole and Collie, there are witnesses. They are picked up at Newcomen Bridge. There are witnesses to that event. Not only are there witnesses to that event, there's actually witnesses to their murder out at Yellow Lane because what it seems is going to happen is they're, they're bundled into this car, they're driven out, but when the Free State soldiers get to the particular laneway, they can't get through the gate, the gate is locked, so they just shoot them there and then in front of a crowd of people. Now, at the inquest, there's witness after witness after witness called. The jury find that, you know, there is someone guilty of willful murder, but they're not identified. Someone knew who killed Cole and Collie. And that just escalates. Um, you have events like the Red Cow out in October. Because the thing is, you have that initial phase of the Civil War, but then the Anish Treaty IRA revert to the tactics that yeah. were so successful. <coughs> and they, they do the have the successes. Hills, you know, you've got big names like Tom Kyo was killed in September, horrifically killed. You've got all these these big names on the pro-treaty side. And, you know, it, it's understandable that people would want revenge, but you literally have people taking the law into their own hands, which afterwards is covered up by the authorities, by the government. You know, there's no inquest allowed to be held in, in certain cases. And if juries do find, you know, a verdict of willful murder, it's generally against persons unknown. And that continues beyond the end of the Civil War. And you think it can't get any worse when you see events like the Red Cow in October, where three young lads... One's 16 years of age. They're taken from the streets in Rumcondra and then their bodies are dumped out in South County, Dublin. You think this cannot get any worse. But then you've got events like Ballyseedy down in uh, Kerry in March and then it continues with Bobby Bonfield and then the horrific incident that is the kidnapping and murder of Nola Mass mm. when the Civil War ends. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned Red Cow and you mentioned the, the, three, the three young lads who are, uh, whose bodies are found there. There is an element in Dublin in particular, we can talk later about what happened in Kerry, which was uh, just as horrendous or even more so, but an entity which is known as Oriel House. Oriel House is uh, CID, Criminal mm-hmm. Investigation Department, but it's also military intelligence. And they are blamed for a lot of the extrajudicial killings that are going on in Dublin, aren't they? Yeah, and you have another group then, the Citizens Defence Force as well. So there's like three groups that are operating. And the military intelligence, it does include people like Charlie Dalton. You've also got people like Flash Bulger. There is Sean O'Connell. All these names that are attached to Collins, you know, War of Independence, intelligence officers. Some of them are former squad. squad. Yeah, exactly. And there is... I suppose, an attitude that, you know, they can't take the law into their own hands because no one is actually tried. When we look at the Red Cow, Charlie Dalton is named 
he is the arresting officer, but also Liam Tobin was there. Deshaun O'Connell was there. When we get to Wellington Barracks, which is the headquarters of military intelligence, which had an awful reputation, like there's, it's brought up with Dublin Corporation, you know, the ill treatment of prisoners in Wellington Barracks. But it just seems that there is an awful lot of protection. And in the case of the Red Cow inquest, Charlie Dalton does not attend. He is not questioned at the inquest and TM Healy is his representative and my God, the, the acrobats he does with wards, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how he, how he flips it around. He actually ends up blaming the anti-treaty IRA on committing this act. But there is certainly protection and it is alleged, no, they are involved in quite an awful lot of these events where men are picked up off the streets and their bodies are literally dumped in the outskirts of Dublin City either north side mm. or south side. I but would argue no with the description men in some cases most of them are boys. Exactly. Mm. Charlie Dalton was only 20, 21 years of age. And he's um, the one who's doing the killing. Not, he's well, not, he's yeah. not the victim. Well in the Red Cow I, I would argue because we don't actually know if he did it. We right. don't know. But the thing is, Charles Dalton never presents himself. And there's a whole question behind this. Other people weren't, weren't called to give evidence. And I've looked into this and I'm thinking, is Charlie Dalton not called? Because if he is involved, will he incriminate himself and others? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know. And see, that doesn't help by the fact that the government in 1932, the Free State government, before they left power and De Valera comes in, they ordered that any documents relating to policy executions and so on be destroyed. So there's stuff we will never, ever know. Colm, the argument that somebody like the the man who was in charge in Kerry, Paddy O'Daly, um, he was, his famous quote is, I was, wasn't asked to bring kid gloves, mm-hmm. so I didn't. I suppose the argument of the free state would be that uh, if we want to nip this in the bud, if we want to end this civil conflict, the only way we can do it is to be utterly ruthless. I mean, do you accept that kind of rationale? Do I accept it? Well, uh, let me make clear, as I make clear in my book, I, I've no bag to carry for either side in the Civil War or for their main successors in Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. I don't subscribe to that. My father was tended to Fianna Gael. My mother was an admirer of Eamon de Valera. And I think there's a whataboutery that's not terribly helpful in some ways. There were atrocities on both sides mm. and twice as many free state people were killed you know, by the anti-treaty side, anti-treaty. Well, in fairness, that's proportional to the to the numbers who were involved. I mean, the Free State Army numbered fifty thousand by the end. Uh, there wouldn't have been any, anything like that number. Of, there were of killings. There were killings and atrocities on both sides, and certainly, I don't agree with you that nothing was done. I mean, the state was conscious. They defended what they had to do, but they tried to make a legitimate way of doing it by passing the Public Safety Bill in autumn 1922, which introduced military tribunals. Whether you like them or not, Cosgrave, as as president of the Doyle and the chief executive of the government, was was embarrassed by this. He had always been against the death penalty, but he did feel, I mean, as you say, that this was the only way to get the thing done. And there does seem to have been some public support for him. I mean, Union of Halpin has pointed this out that it didn't have the same reaction from the people, say, that the British executions in 1916 had. Most people seem to feel. I think from the results of and and from the subsequent election even in 1923 that it was somehow justified. But war is a horrible thing and it was very nasty and it was very nasty on both sides and Paddy O'Daly was clearly out of control at times 
in Kerry and it, you know you can't you cannot justify that in human rights terms on the basis that there were provocations and that, it, that the uh, anti-treaty side was carrying on as it did in in what was an incredibly destructive way not not just to free state lies but they were damaging the country from top to bottom they were blowing up bridges causing tremendous economic hardship at a time when the country was just bleeding emigrant emigration all over the place and people were desperate to get into some kind of normality and an economic daily life so they took strong steps to put an end to an insurrection that didn't have democratic support and unfortunately in doing that they engaged in activities that were to prolong the bitterness and some of which were certainly avoidable or mm. as Liz has said some of which could have been dealt with at least subsequently better than they did in terms of if not bringing people to justice at least acknowledging what had been done. Brian? Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem is, though, is that what we're talking about is this democratic state, which on the one hand is unleashing a wave of very repressive powers, which it believes are necessary. And we can debate, you know, the extent to which they were necessary because the majority of of anti-treatyites legally executed were generally very low level fighters, often executed for possession of weapons or, or even lesser crimes. Very few of the high-level anti-treaty leaders were executed with the exception of, of, of Childers and, and the Mountjoy killings, which we'll probably, yeah. we'll probably get to. Come to those, but yeah. also that there is a semi-official campaign by these murder gangs, which the state knows about. I mean, when Bobby Bonfield is picked up near Stephen's Green, he's picked up by members of, of W.T. Cosgrave's personal escort in the presence of W.T. Cosgrave and his body is found, you know, a day or two later. So W.T. Cosgrave obviously knows this is happening too. The unofficial stuff is going on. Cosgrave in February 1922, you know, famously says, if we have to exterminate 10,000 Republicans, then our three or four million is larger. And that is, you know, reflective of what they they felt they had been driven to. But I think there is a real sense here that we do have to to look back at the foundations of the state and the methods they use and the reasons they use them. And in part, they use them because there's a sense by the winter of 1922 that they're on the back foot. They were winning the conventional war. And one reason why more National Army soldiers are killed, of course, is that because in the early stages of the war, casualty figures are higher because they're fighting in a conventional way. But then the anti-treatyites revert to guerrilla warfare and sabotage and a very nihilistic policy of destruction, which ultimately would not have worked, but which they believe will bankrupt the state or force the state to talk to them, Lynch and others believe. And it's then that we begin to see the policy of executions and so on. But whether they're actually very effective is open to question. If you look again where the executions take place, many take place, for example, in Kildare, which doesn't see a high level of Republican activity. Um, In other places, there's one execution in Cork. Again, the National Army in Cork seem to have wanted to push for a, a less aggressive policy in some ways. In Kerry, up till Christmas when you've got W.R.E. Murphy, a former British officer in charge, he's against executions. He's very worried about the counterproductive effect that a largely outside Kerry National Army force could have on the local population. It's Paddy O'Daly and co push for his removal. They say, no, we need executions and we need, as we'll see, worse. And I would, I actually underestimated, reading Ono Shea's new book on Kerry and the Civil War, I underestimated the extent to which the National Army did behave like an army of occupation in Kerry. I think in many places in Ireland, they weren't seen as invaders. They were seen as legitimate and that people did view what they were doing differently than that. Uh, the methods that the British had used. But certainly in Kerry, it's far worse than even I imagined in terms of the ill-treatment of prisoners, casual disregard for the local population, sexual assaults on women and so on. And this is 
covered up by people like Richard Mulcahy. Yeah. You know, Mulcahy knows it's going on and he ultimately covers it up. And it's only after the war is over that the Free State Government, people like Kevin O'Higgins say, no more now, this has to stop. I suspect Kerry is going to be a separate programme. I don't think we're <laughs> going to get through Kerry. We've, we've given, I think we've given enough, we've talked about it enough. We're not going to get around to talk about it in detail today. And it is what went on in Kerry is a programme in itself. We're going to take a quick break now and we will be back after these. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. We're talking about the beginning of the Irish Free State, the anniversary of which falls this week. My guests are Brian Hanley, Liz Gillis and Colm Kenny. Colm's the author of the new book, A Bitter Winter, The Irish Civil War, 1922 to 1923. Liz, we're in the centenary of that period where... The Irish Free State comes into being, 6th of of December. But we're also in the centenary of a period when the IRA cuts loose on politicians and then the Free State retaliates, uh, responds. Just talk to me a little bit about the events around the 6th of December 1922. So you had the emergency legislation, the Army uh, Resolutions Act that was brought in in September 1922, which sets up the military course and gives the Army power to execute prisoners. Now, although that's brought in in September, the first executions don't actually happen until the 17th of November 1922. But any TD who had voted for that legislation is, in the eyes of the Irish Treaty IRA, a legitimate target for assassination you have what they call the murder bill and there's a list circulated that anyone who has signed this, they are a target. Now on the 7th of December, you have Park O'Malley, who is the last Count Corla, and Sean Hales, who is a Brigadier General in the National Army, veteran of the War of Independence, 1916 West Cork family, and also a TD. And they leave the Ormond Hotel, making their way to the Dáil. As they get on the, the Jarvey, O'Malley is called back by someone that he knows. Sean Hales moves over and literally at that moment, members of the Anne Street IRA come out from side streets surrounding the Ormond, open and fire. O'Malley is the target. He had voted for that legislation. Sean Hales didn't vote. He was nowhere near that vote. He is not the target. But Sean Hales is killed. Despite the fact Jervis Street Hospital is minutes away, it's too late, he's gone within, within minutes. Now, in response to this, you have then four prisoners who had nothing to do with this order from the Anne Street IRA leadership. Um, who do about not under any circumstances come within the remit of the Emergency Powers Act or nope, Public Safety they're prisoners Act. since the fall of the four courts. They have not prisoners. been caught in possession of a weapon or anything nope. like that. Yeah. No, nope. they're arrested as a result of the surrender at four courts on the 30th of June 1922. And these four men are chosen to send a message to the Ant Street IRA. One that from each province, is one that? One from each province. Right. You've got Roy O'Connor, who's Leinster. You've got McKelvey, Joe McKelvey, who's Ulster. Dick Barrett, who is Munster. And tragically, Dick Barrett was a very good friend of Sean Hales. Um, he was his quartermaster during the War of Independence. And then you've got Liam Mellis Connick. So they send the message to the Ant Street IRA. One side is going to win this and it's going to be us, it will not be you. And there's a quote from W.T. Cosgrave in the newspaper after the executions happen because they're literally told in their cells, you are being executed as a result of the assassination of Sean Hales. And the four men are executed. They're not put on trial. There's no legal justification for their executions. But W.T. Cosgrave gives a quote in the newspaper 
and he says that on the 6th of December, the eve of Sean Hale's death, he and McCarthy were talking about issuing an appeal of clemency to the anti-treaty IRA because a number of appeals were issued even after this by the government. But WT says, however, with the death of Hales, there is only one way now to deal with this and that is to smash them. So four men executed as a prize of Sean Hales. But then what happens after that then? The next night, you have then the homes of the pro-treaty TDs being targeted. Sean McGarry's home is targeted by the anti-treaty IRA and his young son dies. So it just escalates and escalates. Mm. But the assassination of Sean Hales and the executions of the four, the Mountjoy four, that is a turning point in the way the civil war is going to develop. Okay, I think we'll accept that Kerry is an entirely different programme, another programme in itself. But uh, a few kind of odd issues that I I want to talk about. Brian, the anti-treaty forces are seen as some sort of homogenous group. Now, we've already established they were anything but a homogenous group. But I'm thinking in terms of the involvement of people like Pather O'Donnell, who was uh, a Marxist, basically. Liam Mellows, uh, Liz has already referred to, is executed in Mountjoy, who is definitely a socialist. Very Catholic socialist. Very Catholic socialist, admittedly, no doubt about that, as you say, as you say in the point out in the book. But, you know, a socialist nonetheless, very different from the De Valeras, the Brewers and, you know, even the Lynches and, and Aikens, also on the anti-treaty side. But it reflected that the, the revolutionary movement before the split was a coalition. Mm. And on the pro-treaty side, you could argue there's a big, big difference between, you know, some of the people around Collins and Mulcahy and so on and, and some of the others who backed the treaty. So on the anti-treaty side, you do have those like J.J. O'Kelly, for example, Brian O'Higgins, Mary McSweeney, who are extremely conservative Catholics and not at all interested at all in social and economic issues. You have people who are more pragmatic, I think, like Aiken and De Valera, as, as, as will be proven in later years. And then you have those like O'Donnell, who from an early stage is arguing that this has to be about a social revolution. That's very much a minority view. But of course, following the fall of the four courts, when they're locked up, him and Mellows and others have plenty of time to talk about this. And that's why Mellows sends this communique out that it's back to the men of no property, that we've got to revive the democratic programme, that we've got to talk again about the idea of of some kind of popular struggle. Now, what's very interesting, of course, is that that's captured by the authorities. And the authorities publicise it because they actually think this can be used to, to as a stick to beat the anti-treaty ads and say the anti-treaty ads have been captured by the communists. And during the Civil War, the Free State begins to use language about anarchy, about Bolshevism, about essentially every kind of strife that's taken place as being connected to the attempted overthrow of the state. So you do see things that are not connected to the anti-treaty IRA, like the post office workers' strike, being denounced by the government in the same terms that they're denouncing the IRA. The military being used against strikers, very draconian legislation being considered for use against strikers and so on. Now, some on the anti-treaty side hope that that will benefit them, but really it's very often quite separate. But it does show you that there was, Mm. since 1916, you'd had a coalition looking for independence and that coalition split but both sides were still in many ways coalitions and also on the other side of the coin column uh, there are unionists who are looking on southern and northern unionists looking on and thinking ooh opportunity here perhaps there's a strong unionist sentiment in the House of Commons for example Oh, there's a very strong unionist sentiment and part of the problem is that a lot of that sentiment is actually English. It's a bit like, almost a little bit like now. I mean, some of the biggest problems for the Irish are English politicians, in fact, who think they want to be more unionist than the unionists themselves and things. Further, Likewise, for their own domestic reasons. At the beginning of my book, I quote an old Irish proverb said that, a war, that says, Cogad Carad, 
Queenova, that a war of friends is their enemy's opportunity. And this was, nothing could have been truer. I mean, what is seldom discussed is the impact of this, for instance, on what Collins and Griffith believed they'd won in respect to Northern Ireland with the with the Boundary Commission. They really and truly were convinced that they were going to get Tyrone and Fermanagh into the new state, along with some other areas. And part of what Collins was at when he was doing this two-hander, as Brian has talked about, trying to stir up trouble along the border, was to put increased pressure to, on the British to get a better end deal out of that commission. And one of the ironies of the Civil War, of course, is that at the end of it, the two ministers in the provisional government who were who were best placed to force the British hand and probably most committed to uh, expanding the Irish Free State, Collins and Griffith, were both dead. And that was a tremendous tragedy. And just one of the ways in which this Civil War damaged Ireland so badly indeed. And uh, we did achieve, Brian, and uh, we should point this out, we did achieve a united Ireland for 24 hours or slightly less than 24 hours? Well, I mean, the, in, in the Westminster debates about the Treaty, the Ulster Unionists all voted against it and denounced it. And you would often wonder if we if we're given to believe that the Treaty Copper fastened partition, why they were so against it. But in theory, there was to be a 32-county free state as a dominion of the British Empire. And this would, of course, again, in theory, have allowed some kind of United Irish settlement. It would have been very interesting in many ways if that had happened. But in real terms, the Unionists were given the power to opt out and they opted out as quickly as they could. I mean, they were on the next boat, literally, to London with their opt-out. So unionists knew that they were never really going to be forced into this, but still made a big show of denouncing it. On the other hand, Northern Nationalists, and Column is right, were tremendously disillusioned by the Civil War. For them, it just seems as if the South has turned its back on them, because now the South is tearing itself apart. So who is going to speak for them? There is also another war, another conflict. It's not a war as such going on during the Civil War, which the Irish Free State has to take cognizance of. And that is a conflict against trade unions, against labour agitators, but also against land seizures. So you have a unit that is hardly ever discussed. I mean, I've never really seen it discussed anywhere in, in, in histories that I've read, which is formed... It's part of, but it's separate from, the National Army. Tell me about the Special Infantry Corps. Well, the Special Infantry Corps is established mainly to deal with land agitation, with what Kevin O'Higgins in particular sees as this anarchy and Bolshevism on the land. He often says that they're not really fighting a political enemy, they're fighting essentially this innate lawlessness in the Irish people that needs to be brought under control. So the Special Infantry Corps are not really used to fight the IRA. They're mainly sent to the southeast where there's very bitter farm labourer struggles, in fact. And rather than seizing land, the farm labourers are going on strike against their employers, who are the local farmers. You've got this very complex situation where some of the local farmers had, the bigger ones had been unionists at one time, uh, Sir John Keane, for example, and others are nationalists. But you've got arson, you've got gun attacks, weapons used by both sides. You've got farmers founding what's called a white guard. But the government comes clearly down on the side of the farmers and it wants to bring this strike to an end at whatever cost. So the special Infantry Corps are sent in. Now, they also include veterans of the squad. A man called James Conroy, for example, whose career was bad enough already and gets even worse in the aftermath of the war, which is another day's work. But they are despised by the strikers in Waterford and seen very much as essentially being there to smash them as being on, on the side of the farmers. But there's other, you know, disputes in this period where the government does kind of take the view that if, if you go on strike, you're against us. And that's more or less 
being on the same side as the IRA. So we've got no compunction about uh, using the military or the police to, to, to crush you. There, there were aspects of this too, even before the, in the War of Independence, with the IRA being used to dissuade moves towards setting up Soviets, for example. Brian used an interesting phrase earlier when he suggested Labour had abdicated its responsibility, perhaps a bit harsh, by staying out of the 1918-21 elections to allow the independence question to be settled. But certainly they got very little thanks, Labour, for what they did. They played a very honourable road, Tom Johnson and uh, Carl O'Shannon particularly. And they, you know, they were interesting people. Carl O'Shannon had a good relationship with Griffith, with whom he greatly disagreed, for example. And Johnson ends up very sadly, I heard uh, me, Michael D. Higgins at Machnav recently talking, reminding people of a visit to Tom Johnson and his wife in old age, Barry Desmond and another person. And he was living in poverty, you know, in a very poor circumstances, could barely afford this a This is the person with. who had provided the opposition to the Free State government. And a very uh, subtle, sophisticated, adult, balanced form of opposition, but um, didn't get great thanks for it. I mean, in the 23 election, in fact, they they drop points already. They're, they're losing out and continue to lose out. Um, finally, Liz, the, the treatment of anti-treaty IRA men and IRA women in the Ireland of the of the 1920s. They weren't made particularly welcome, were they? No, 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 no. Ireland was a very cold place for them. And a lot had, to, a lot did leave. What is really sad is when you read the pension files and um, a lot of them actually end up going to England. Um, because they weren't the, entitled to a pension under the 1924 no, legislation. No, you have the pension being brought in. Um, but with the pensions, it just seems they didn't want to give out money to anyone because James Connolly's wife has to actually beg and plead for a pension. And fair play to Richard Mulcahy, he steps in and says, you know, paraphrasing here, but surely the wife of James Connolly doesn't have to prove her husband died for Ireland, give her the money. But um, that's not open to anyone who was on the anti-treaty side, it's not until De Valera gets in that he opens up the pensions to the anti-treaty side. However, despite the fact that you have the applications being open to them now, they still have to jump through so many hoops, especially the women, to actually get a paltry pension. Let's face it, like it's, it's not an awful lot for so many people. But you do have, you know, there are places where people cannot get work. There's no opportunities for them here. And also there are people that have to get out because it's not safe for them here. Even though they've left prison, they're free. And Nolan Mass is the prime example of this mm. because he goes to England, comes back, writes letters, you know, gets his boss to write letters in the corporation to the government or the authorities saying, I am not going to have any part in this. And he's kidnapped in July 1923, bodies discovered in the featherbeds in October. And myself and Brian were talking about this, this continues right up until December 1923. But you have people being held in prison until 1924. And I've heard stories, I've met families his relatives, when they were released from prison, there's fellas waiting for them at their home to kill them. So it's unsafe for people and the only option for some of them is to get out. So yeah, it's, it's a cold place and it becomes very, very cold, especially for the women who took part and then women in general. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, Column's book is A Bitter Winter, The Irish Civil War, 1922 to 1923. I'd like to thank my guests, Column Kenny, Brian Hanley and Liz Gillis for joining me this evening to discuss the events which occurred as the Free State officially came into existence and the legacy of those events 100 years ago. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Harry Buckless on sound and our researcher, the self-same Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. 
Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show.